Assalamualaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM. We're also streaming at WCEV1450.com. If you have not already done so, make sure you are following us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And also take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. We are basically wherever you get yours at. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, TuneIn, uh, and a bunch of other platforms. And you'll find us at that same username at Radio Islam USA. All right, folks, we're going to just jump right in. Um, many of you know, right, if you have not been in a cave or, you know, been in a house with the lights off, you are aware that Alabama, uh, the state of Alabama, their state legislature recently passed the um, what's what some are referring to as a as, as a handmaidens um, type of uh, abortion legislation. Right. It is the absolute uh, strictest abortion law of any state in the country. And we're expecting to see. Other states uh, with with uh, Republican majorities uh, in their uh, legislature to follow suit uh, with the goal being to get this before the Supreme Court in an effort to overturn Roe v. Wade. Now, we want to have some discussion around how this how this impacts uh uh, the, the Muslims and not just how it impacts us, but how we're responding to it. And I couldn't think of anybody better to have on the program uh, to join us to talk about this uh, this issue than scholar, activist and writer Donna Austin. Uh, she's joined us before in the, in the past and we're happy to have her on again. If you have not uh, heard of her, uh, then uh, let me tell you just a bit about her. She uh, her work focuses on race ethnicity, gender and religion and media representation and Islam in America. Uh, it's been covered in multiple national news outlets, and we are always happy to have her uh, on the program. So we welcome her. She's joining us on the phone. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. It's good to be here. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So um, where do we start? I think I think first off, I like what what, what was your initial um, take on this? with regard to responses from the Muslim community, or what did you foresee uh, some of those responses being? Well, I think actually, I mean, I saw um, a, a somewhat divided um, set of responses, at least judging by my Twitter feed and, you know, just conversations that I had with people. Um, many of kind of, the you know, American Muslim communities public clergy-like figures, um, imams and, and, and others who have that sort of religious background, um, I saw many of them um, making statements, you know, that, that seemed to be in support, at least, at least partial support of um, this law and others like it. Um, I guess it's important to maybe just to point out briefly that the Alabama law um, has emerged um, within the context of a number of other laws just this year. I think like maybe seven, six or seven other states have um, passed uh, laws that were quite similar, um, if, if not as extreme as this particular one, um, just, just since the beginning of the year. Um, so in general, I've seen, on the one hand, I've seen a lot of those individuals sort of affirming, you know, this, the importance of, uh, you know, a sort of taking a stand on 
quote unquote morality or moral issues, right? And abortion being one of those that define our time. You know that you know this is a this is a, a courageous stand for you know sort of a traditional religious. Um, you know, viewpoint on the matter that's being asserted in public life. And so many of them see this as a good thing. Mm. Um, On the other hand, you know, a lot of, and particularly, you know, and it's not an accident or it's not coincidental or it's not incident, maybe I should say, Mm -hmm. um, that that most of those folks are men. Mm -hmm. Um, And I saw many of the women. Um, in my newsfeed, um, people uh, who work on reproductive rights, for example, in the Muslim community and, and beyond, um, you know, other types of uh, women who have not only personal experience, but professional expertise that um, that gives them insight into what the actual impact of these laws will be. Because, I mean, it's one thing to talk about these things in sort of a theoretical moral framework type of way. Um, but the reality is, of course, is that they had impact on actual women's lives. So when the rubber hits the road, you know, what is, how are we going to deal with the fallout? And so I saw from a lot of those uh, women that I know, I've had a lot of conversations, not not just what I was observing on my Twitter feed, but a lot of women that I've talked to um, who text, we were, you know, sharing text messages or, or having conversations in other ways. Um, where for a lot of us, this is this really feels like a gut punch because you know it is, in fact, um, quite draconian, quite restrictive, um, and it's frightening when you are faced with the possibility that um, your your personal health care decisions, mm-hmm. um, you know, can be regulated to this degree. Um, you know, and it's it's frightening that, you know, you are really faced with the possibility that um, caring for yourself and making health care decisions for yourself is something that might, you know, run you into legal trouble or other types of, you know, other types of complications where you're, you know, you're trying to make a decision in an already stressful situation mm-hmm. um, about what to do with your body and your health. Um, and you have to contend with government uh control in what is ve- what is a very private and very intimate set of decisions. Um, and so those reactions were quite different. Mm. Um, and those reactions were, you know, were, I mean, every, I mean, alarmed, frightened, frustrated, um, and then, of course, vocal about what the actual consequences of this type of legislation is or likely to be. Let um, me ask you and this. So I, uh-huh. Let me ask this. Um, what I find interesting is that the the Muslim community being a, a minority community, a uh, minority demographic here in the United States, um, is also in general under attack uh, in, in many, many places where you have elected officials that are uh, outwardly publicly saying anti-Muslim or expressing anti-Islamic uh, sentiments. Uh, and a number of states, you know, have gone so far as to uh, whether it's resolutions or looking to pass uh, actual legislation uh, that is anti-Sharia. Uh, mm-hmm. do, do you think that that we have a, a problem in not seeing that as we have been the 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 uh, the focus of, of this type of animus that we are maybe missing? Uh, and I don't want to say we because I'm not one of those people. But do you think that maybe some of us are not seeing that in this type of legislation that is also kind of a, a harbinger of 
uh, of, of things to come uh, with regard to the Muslim population in general? Well, I mean, I, if I, I think if I understand your question correctly, right, um, I think what it is important to point out is that, one, I think, and, and stop me if I'm misunderstanding the question, mm-hmm. um, but I think part of what is what you apply here with, with what you're saying here, what you're, what you're asking, um, there is a good deal of overlap <laughs> mm-hmm. um, between um, proponents of these really uh, strong uh, uh, positions against abortion, right, mm-hmm. um, and anti-Muslim sentiment and other types of and you know, other types of attacks on reproductive rights. Um, you know, this this sort of assertion of conservative politics, um, where racism and xenophobia goes hand in hand with um, with with misogyny, right? Um, and it's it comes from a particular religious framework in in part, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a very Christian, conservative, um, moral majority, um, you know, um, religious right wing uh, body politic that has been asserting itself for for decades now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, there is a confluence of um, this sort of um, this sort of hysteria, right? And this 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 just general need to kind of, you know, quote unquote, make to to make America great again, right? Go back right. to this time period where, you know, where where black people and you know Muslims, if there were any, I mean, uh, you know, where women, where everybody who was not a Christian white man knew their place, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so there is a confluence and there is a relationship um, between the assertion of these sorts of politics, even though the issues on the surface don't seem to be related, but they do go hand in hand. Um, and how, and, and I guess the question is, how is that sort of shaping the Muslim response? Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think, I think, I mean, one of the interesting things that I've seen as somebody who kind of looks at Muslims in U.S. politics and, and, and this sort of thing as a part of my research, um, it has been interesting to kind of see um, and I think that element was always there in some ways, but it's been really interesting to see this uh, this vocal assertion on the part of, you know, a block of prominent uh, Muslim American Muslim theologians and imams and religious leaders, um, and then others who kind of follow those folks um, towards a very uh, towards a Muslim version of. Uh, Christian evangelical more majority right wing politics, mm-hmm. right under the language of you know kind of this return to quote unquote traditional Islam, right? It's it's a very similar type of impulse, and so there's been a very public, um, you know, a very public, you know, body of discourse emerging that that really you know it's really it's really it's it's both a lot it's interesting right as a social scientist but it's also quite alarming right to see um you know muslims endorsing right-wing man's rights you know personalities like jordan peterson who are both quote these like alt-right men's rights traditional morality type people but also um you know very very much in the white supremacist islamophobic xenophobia camp Right. It all kind of comes as a package. But you see these Muslims kind of like promoting these ideologies. Right. And this is, of course, the logical. These types of laws. Right. Are 
are a logical out uh, extension of that sort of politics, right? So you have seen that, and I think in a very forceful way. I think in some ways um, what's different in this moment um, is that although I think since I've been Muslim since the late 80s, uh, early 90s, mm-hmm. um, since I became a Muslim, you know, there's certainly, I think, on some questions, right, um, you know, a sort of conservative Muslim impulse in terms of particular issues. I wouldn't, but I mean, but I think it's more complicated than that because those, you know, many of those same people have a very, for example, um, strident critique of American foreign policy and, and racist and violent practices of the U.S. state. So it's like, so it's not easily, and or, and, or you know, very, um, very, you know, socially liberal or, or financially or fiscally or uh, liberal types of quote unquote liberal types of views where um, there's widespread support, for example, for um, for safety net programs for people who are struggling economically, food stamps, health care, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so kind of placing, you know, American Muslim politics into a single box, of course, is, is you know, according to um, these like anemic fables, you know, conservative liberal, I think is is a, a fool's errand because it's much more complicated than that. But I think what has been interesting in the last couple of years, particularly since Trump's election, right, is this really vocal um, and an obvious adoption of a Muslim version, um, an, an American Muslim version of uh, U.S. white, white Christian evangelical politics, mm-hmm. right? So, so essentially, like, you have Muslims and and Christian evangelical uh, blackface, if you will, or whiteface, <laughs> or whatever. Just like I don't, you don't know, even know yeah. what to call it, but you know what I mean. Like this yeah. kind of like, you know, these 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 Muslims and Christian uh, in Christian dress, right? Kind of adopting the rhetoric of that particular um, religious political uh, uh, segment of American society in ways that are just just you know stunning to. Right. Have you have you talked to Muslim women uh, or aware of comments made by Muslim women who are actually in favor of this uh, of this type of legislation? I mean, they exist. I mean, most of my close associates um, do not endorse this sort of thing. But of course, there are Muslim women out there who I mean, Muslim women are like everybody else. Right. We were, we're, you know, we're not monolithic. And so we have a range of opinions. Mm -hmm. And of course, this mirrors, um, so you have Muslim women who are in, um, you know, strident support of this particular measure or measures like it. Um, but I think on, you know, I think it's also kind of important to point out that this mirrors uh, the kind of the broader, um, the broader body politic on this question, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, it's important to note here in uh, the case of Alabama, the author of this particular bill, of this particular piece of legislation, is in fact a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, the governor who signed it into law is in fact a woman, mm-hmm. right? So, like, so, so it's not perhaps surprising um, when you find that there are women who, you know, who who fall on you know varying sides of this particular question, right? I mean, it is a you know it's a polarizing issue in some ways, and there are all sorts of opinions, and women are no different in that. That we have um, a range of beliefs on you know about this sort of thing. And can we get to a point where, um, well, please share your thoughts on how 
we seem to kick the can down the road. Uh, and even with um, even with the legislation, there's not really a conversation on how does this actually impact the lives of women um, with regard to uh, uh, health, um, with regard. To, well, simply, first of all, taking the choice away. Right. Uh, their own right. uh, autonomy. That That's the first and foremost thing. Um, but how but how how are these concerns that naturally come from uh, legislation like this being passed? being being actually addressed right because the conversation it, it's always centered around um the sanctity of life uh but it's it it very rarely comes to well how does that life look um you know right, right. so so what, what do you get, please share your thoughts on that so so i think in general um like in terms of the question of the sanctity of life um you know and pro-life and these sorts of you know semi-abstract labels, right? When we're talking about them, it's like kind of what do you mean? Um, it's interesting to note, and one of the enduring frustrations of mine, that um, many of these you know, pro-life politicians and, and political movements, um, they, they adopt that language. But I mean, when you look consistently across the board on positions on a range of issues um, related to life, right? Um, it's hard to imagine how this would even remotely be an accurate sort of moniker. So, for example, um, we want to take a firm stand on um, hindering women's women's access to abortion because saving life is important, right? Um, But on the other hand, these are the same politicians that, as a rule, are voting against the expansion of of universal health care, food stamps, family assistance, educational, um, good educational access, um, living wage, you know, living, yeah. you know, like raising the minimum wage. So all of these things that would actually, and also relatedly, um, that are all, that are also, that also tend to be very poorly. So in cases where, for example, black people are murdered by the cops or caught up in the criminal justice system in ways that that severely impact the stability of families and the ability to sustain life, right, mm-hmm. at, a, at a basic level, both for the person incarcerated or for the person caught up in the criminal justice system, but for also for their families and communities, right? These people are in, typically um, using that label, although on all of those other issues, they are in favor of policies that really make life untenable for so many people. Alabama has one of the highest poverty rates in the nation, mm-hmm. right? And so for a state that's quote-unquote pro-life, how is it that re- like reducing access to health care and, and a state where it's already restricted? I was reading something this morning online. Um, I think Alabama has three, four um, less than five abortion clinics across the state, mm. um, and like, and and I and I want to, and I and, I, and it's also I think important to suss out what we mean by abortion. I mean, abortion covers a range of of you know. I mean, and and this is, and I say this as somebody who's not personally likely um, to make the decision to receive an elective abortion mm-hmm. uh, personally. Right. 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 However, if you have a miscarriage, 
right? And the miscarriage is not complete and you need to have a DNC, right? Which is where, you know, you're kind of dilated and, you know, the remains of the fetus that need to be, you know, sort of cleaned out of a woman's uterus mm -hmm. is a process that, that might, that, that is, you know, it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's the language of it, right? Um, could, you know, could make that sort of procedure just like difficult to access, right? Because the, because the bill, I mean, one of the things I think just to clarify, well, the bill would, one of the things that the bill would do was actually to, um, to target doctors who perform these procedures for criminal prosecution and they would face up to life in prison. So now, so you have, you already have, you have already limited um, scenario where access to facilities that do all of these sorts of healthcare procedures, right, for all sorts of reasons that a woman might need to or elect to have um, an abortion um, mm -hmm. or an abortion-like procedure because there there is a spectrum of circumstances, right? If, if a woman is, for example, carrying a, a pregnancy that's untenable, right, that's, that's not viable, um, the, you know, there everybody's subject to the same law. Of course, rape or incest, thankfully, in this law, where exceptions were introduced into this bill to kind of, you know, make exceptions for cases of rape or incest. Mm -hmm. That was the doubt. So now, so all of these, all of these reasons, um, and again, as somebody who might not personally elect to have, you know, just an abortion for what, quote-unquote, may seem like frivolous reasons, and that's not my language, but kind of just how people often imagine it. Oh, you just, you know, you just, you, you didn't, just didn't have want a, it. a quote, quote, present. You're yeah. right. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, which, which of course in itself is complicated when earning a living wage is not something that's viable for a lot of people. So how am I going to take care of this fetus? Right. right. How, so, you know, so it's like, so, so the politics, so the body politic that's quote unquote pro-life, right. Um, is not supporting life once it's born <laughs> right. for, 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 these, for these children, for their families. And so the impact um, ranges from, the, the impact is so far-reaching because it reaches across the spectrum of, of how people are kind of navigating the world and trying to do so in a way that um, where they and their children and their families can thrive and survive and prosper and have dignity in their everyday existence, which is hard to do um, under such dire, you know, socioeconomic conditions. Um, I think it's also important to point out here um, that I think what, one of the things that many people forget is that states like Alabama, excuse me, states like Alabama, Georgia, um, those states in the South have some of the highest proportions of black women in those states. Mm -hmm. So, um, these are communities, our communities, our like black communities are going to be among the most adversely affected by um, this restricted access, right, um, to what is medical care. Like let's <laughs> let's be clear. This is these are these are this is medical care. This is restricting access to medical care. Right. Right. Um, we, you know, which gets lost, I think, in, in many of this, the discussions about, you know, abortion, because this is a lightning rod term, right? Which I think, as I was trying to, you know, just to clarify a little bit earlier, covers a, a range of, you know, types of, you know, possible scenarios. Um, and, but, but at bottom, what's being restricted here is women's access to medical care. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, 
that's a problem and that's going to remain a problem in a lot of ways because it's just because it, it, it has real consequences, not just at the time of the procedure, by the way, right? right? But these have lasting um, and generational impact on the lives of the most, of especially the most vulnerable women, right? Poor black women, for example. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's something to be, uh, to, to really be concerned about, yeah. I think. Well, uh, it, it's going to be, Interesting to see how this continues to play out, especially now with the uh, structure of the Supreme Court um, uh, and, and seeing how other states with Republican majorities follow suit, um, as I said. And they've and they've been very clear about it. The whole point was for them to get this to the Supreme Court, to have it litigated there. Mm-hmm. And, exactly. Yeah. And to overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, so I think in the in the meantime, uh, all of the the points that you brought up, I think these are the important things that we have to be able to to figure with that we have to grapple with. How do you live in a nation of uh, plurality, um, and 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 allow respect for differing opinions that do not um, that do not regard that do not you know result in legislation that becomes um, you know oppressive uh, to people. Right. So. You know, and I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. We, we don't really, we're not in a position where we are dealing with people based upon the interest, the, the, the well-being of people. You know, it really is about having one particular uh, thought, one particular, um, uh, you know, set of, you know, ideals, uh, dogma uh, that's going to be adhered to. Uh, and, 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 and that certainly, I think we're going to be the worst for it. So, um, but that being said, uh, we, we strive and we move forward. So uh, at the very least, we must raise our voices. And I appreciate you being a consistent voice uh, to bring up uh, issues and, and 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 being very, very clear about shooting folks down that, uh, you know, that come out of left field. So uh, we appreciate you very much for taking the time. <laughs> Uh, Uh, thank you so thank you so much for for providing space and if there's one more thing i can say before we close out i mean i think i think it's i think one of the things that's important for me for muslims right Mm -hmm. um you know i think that we really um do need to dig deeper Mm -hmm. um on these sorts of complex uh and pressing societal issues um i think you know one of the things that we are that that many um people who occupy leadership positions in our community, but also uh, many of the rank and file folks, because um, we have a responsibility in creating space for the, for the types of conversations that we need to have in our communities, mm-hmm. um, both internally to Muslims, but also vis-a-vis, you know, kind of that pluralistic society that you, you just, you know, mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we really need to, um, respect the fact that our tradition actually does have the range mm-hmm. to deal with um, these of complex societal issues. However, what, 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 ten, what generally has happened is that Muslims have, in many cases, reverted to these sort of knee-jerk, um, reflexive, very unnuanced positions on issues that are extremely complicated. Mm. You know, so in other words, just that well, no, that's that's haram or that's halal or whatever. End yeah. of story. End of discussion. We don't need to really relitigate this. Is not going to cut it. It's actually it's just real. It's lazy, mm-hmm. um, and it's harmful. Yeah. Right. 
what we have to do um, is to actually say, you know, there's some there's some synthesis work that needs to be done. That means that we do have to, you know, kind of go to whatever textual sources that our religious tradition brings, but also bring them to bear on, on, you know, the expertise that people bring, you know, people who work in, in, in healthcare and, and sociology and, uh, you know, and economics and, and political science and how, and, and actually take all of that knowledge and put it together to, to really do the hard work of coming up with some sort, some sets of answers that actually take seriously the fact that people's lives are at stake. Mm, and mean. so far, we have not. Well, I, I think our leadership has dropped the ball in a major way on that, and it's unacceptable. The end. <laughs> <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> Period. <laughs> well, again, I, I appreciate you. Um, and I, I pray that, uh, especially as we're having this conversation during this blessed month of Ramadan, uh, that this Ramadan continues to be um, a, a source of renewal uh, and, um, and and just growth uh, for you and your family. So thank you once again. You too. Thank you so much. All right. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. All right, folks, we're going to take a short break, but we will be back. So don't go anywhere. This is Radio Islam on WCEV 1450 AM. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to a special update from Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen. The Chinese government has detained over one million Uyghur Muslims in its concentration camps, placed one million Chinese communists in their homes, and has forcefully taken their children to orphanages to raise them as atheists. After the Holocaust over 70 years ago, 149 countries signed a genocide treaty to prevent this horror from ever being repeated. However, the world's failure to stop the genocide of Rohingya in Burma makes it clear that we have failed. Even worse, it seems that we have encouraged China to do the same to its own minorities. Article 36 of China's Constitution guarantees citizens freedom of religious beliefs and bans discrimination based on religion. However, over the last three years, the Chinese government has stepped up its decades-long persecution of the Uyghur community in Xinjiang in northwest China. Uyghur Muslims are struggling for freedom, liberty, and justice. If you enjoy these freedoms, you will enhance them by working for the freedom for others. As people of faith, fellow Muslims to the Uyghurs, as well as Americans living in a democracy, we are in a unique position to step up and speak up on their behalf, and our government can and will listen. But first thing is first, learn more. Our latest edition of Sound Vision's newsletter focuses on Uyghur Muslims. Now, once you become aware of their struggle, let others know as well. Then, organize to support them. Sound Vision has published an informative booklet about Uyghur Muslims, which you can use to raise awareness. You can download a digital copy at soundvision.com, or you can call 1-800-432-4262 to order copies for distribution at your masjid, your place of worship, community center, etc. Please also visit saveweger.org. That's save, S-A-V-E, Uyghur, 
uighur.org for more information and regular action alerts. Resources and updates can also be found at facebook.com forward slash China Muslims. Now, finally, the following is a peace and justice calendar of events that you can participate in to speak out for Rohingya and Uyghur Muslims. We strongly encourage and invite you to attend uh, personally, but also to reach out to others to join you in your attendance. January 19th, the Women's March, where Uyghur and Rohingya sisters are marching against rape along with other Muslims. February 10th, Washington, D.C., Burma Task Force Banquet. March 12th, register for Rohingya Day at the Capitol Hill. And April 6th, join Uyghur Muslims rallying in Washington, D.C. Throughout history, it has been the inaction of those who could have acted, the indifference of those who should have known better, the silence of the voice of justice when it mattered most that has made it possible for evil to triumph. Haile Selassie. Again, visit SaveWeger.com for more information on how you can help. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el We're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. If you haven't already done so, make sure you are following and liking our pages on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And also subscribe to the podcast. That's right, we podcast. So subscribe, rate, review, and share. And you'll find us at that same username at Radio Islam USA, wherever you get your podcast at. All right, folks, I am happy to, uh, you know what, let me pause for a moment and uh, and, and show some manners, uh, show some appreciation and awareness of this blessed month that we're in. Uh, Ramadan Mubarak to all of you who are observing this month. And I pray that it is a month of renewal, uh, that it is simply it's a beneficial month uh, for you and, and your families and your friends and and, and, and everybody that you're in contact with, uh, God willing. All right. So today we have joining us on the line, uh, Radio Islam cultural contributor, Layla Abdullah Poulos. Uh, as you all know, she is an author, a writer, um, a cultural critic. Uh, she works with Muslim Arc as a, uh, as a trainer. Uh, she's an adjunct professor as well. And I always go through this because I say, well, what did I miss? So we'll see. But uh, we have her on the line with us. So assalamu alaikum. Ramadan Mubarak. Ramadan Mubarak. Uh, so tell me, did I leave anything out? Yeah, but it doesn't matter. Okay. All right. I, uh, <laughs> I have to thank you, though, because the talk that we had last time about Ramadan delay. Yes. And the advice that you gave me and everything like that, it really helped out a lot. My Ramadan has improved a great deal. And Alhamdulillah, um, Alhamdulillah. some people hit me up. I'm like, oh, we didn't know your Ramadan was going like that. Let's talk. So, okay. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> you know, it's still hectic, but Alhamdulillah, I've gotten a lot better. So, All right. All right. Good stuff. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. So, um, there is a lot going on. Back in February, he did the uh, Black Muslim Authors Roundtable. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the first of its kind, and we're looking we're looking forward to next year. But in the meantime, uh, as we make our way towards next year, there are some things that are coming up uh, in the world of Muslim writers and authors, and uh, this is a great time to talk about them. Tell us about what is going on, what's coming up. Well, it is actually really, really great. You know, um, we had the Black Muslim authors, and that was a really great event, but it's just like really starting to boom out now because uh, it the a lot of the attendees there really recognize the need for Muslim writers in the U.S. to like bring it up a notch and start to really uh, events and and things that will that promote writing and building. Uh, and and confidence in our cultural experiences as Muslims across the spectrum of backgrounds. So one of the panelists that was on in the Black Muslim Authors Roundtable was Sakina Rashid uh, from Muslim Writers and Publishers Association. So she is uh, was was so inspired by what we had at Black Muslim Authors. Okay, and it was something that she wanted to do similar convening. So now Muslim Writers and Publishers Association is having this wonderful conference in Michigan. Oh, Detroit. Detroit, Michigan. Is that the same thing? What, Detroit, Michigan? <laughs> yeah, Dearborn in Detroit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, no, Detroit. That's like basically the same, right? Well, no, no, that, it's not the same, but um, there, there's, I think there's some proximity between the two. Okay, so they're close together. Okay, so it's in Detroit, and uh, in July... And so she's having the, the they're having this big wonderful conference with all kinds of speakers. You're gonna have Umjuwaria there, uh uh Edun, Rahsana Khan, who I gotta stand girl and kinda meet if when I go, I gotta seek her <laughs> out. <laughs> and there and, and there's going to be wonderful writing workshops and there's going to be this editors round table where writers get to bring their work to editors. There's going to be book signings. There's going to be this bazaar. There's going to be author marketing uh, master class there, which I think is wonderful because one of the things that I've noticed uh, when I ventured, first of all, when I was uh, researching as a literary critic, but even even more when I ventured into authorship, is that a lot of the stuff, a lot of the workshops and things that, uh, are made available by Muslims to Muslim writers, usually focus on beginning writers and uh, people who are just starting out. So you'll see things like, oh, well, you can write a book, like that type of thing, which is great, but what happens when you've already written that book? Yeah. Mm. Hey, what's <laughs> so next? What, what do you do? What's next? Oh, what do you do when you've already written and marketed a book and you really would like to know how to uh, build your fan base more, so that and, and, and marketing strategies to improve the the your your sales and and expand your your platform. So what do you do then? So they're going to have an author author marketing class. I think that they really did a good job in uh, offering sessions that were that are for beginning, intermediary, and uh, experienced writers. So I think that that's one of the things that they're doing that's unique. And they also have babysitting. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's limited. So mm-hmm. people got to register. And 
Honestly, you know, I've gone to several different conferences, and uh, the ticket price is actually awesome for a conference of this size and caliber and offering this is $99. And that's extremely affordable uh, uh, as conferences go. Okay. Now, how, how long is the conference? One day. Okay. So just can pack everything into one day, which I love. Yeah. You know, one I, I, I there are some conferences that I attend that are are two days, three days, four days, and I never attend all of the stuff. Yeah, <laughs> 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 you know, it's, it's so much that they're offering, and, and you never get you never attend all of the stuff, and so a nice one day conference to go in and and and, and engage with writers and um, learn some things, and also have an opportunity to look at the writing, your, your, where you are as a writer and where you need to be and, and having to avail some, some information to get there, I think is really, really good. I think it's wonderful. I mean, they're going to have media prep and uh, presentations, so that's wonderful because that's the other thing. You know, one of the, what, you know, there's so much that goes to being an author that is beyond writing the actual manuscript. So the, the business, the, the business of writing. There's a business to writing. I mean, honestly, when if you are trying to get information, you want to share, share anything with people. You know, I'm a storyteller. I like to share my stories. I can't share my stories unless I have the money to prepare those stories to share. You know, you really need to, you really need to have that. And it's not a cheap process to, to go through and so you really need to know how to efficiently market yourself and market your books so that you can have you can have a return on the investment that you make in uh, disseminating your books so that you can write new books if that if that is what you want to do not everyone wants to write a bunch of books some people want to write one book and that's great but what if that's not what you want to do? You want to write more than one book. You know, a, a lot of times, the majority of the times, it's never one book. Right. <laughs> you never one book in you. There's always more than one book in you. And once you get old, once you get past that, uh, the publishing of your first book, there's usually another book, another book, another book. And if you don't have the capital to uh, have that book uh, professionally edited and published, and edited well, I don't want to go into my editing nightmares, and published, then that's the last book you are going to write or are going to have published. And you may have other books written, and how are you going to get those published? So you have to be able to efficiently market yourself and your books so that you can earn the money to put out more books. Now, is, you know, this, is this conference going to have room? Does the name... Um, uh, it, it, should people infer that those who are interested in publishing or getting into publishing, maybe not necessarily uh, writing, right, but that, that they just want to work on that aspect, uh, is, is there a space for people who have that type of aspiration at this, conf at this conference? Well, one of the guest speakers is uh, actually there's a couple of them that are self-published, but there's one publisher, okay, that they have Asma Hussein 
Mm-hmm. Okay, she's an author and a publisher. There are quite a few authors that end up becoming publishers as well. Stacia uh, Fazar is one. She has Jurabi Kitab Publishing. So, yeah, there is there will be information for people who are interested in publishing as well. So it's for authors, illustrators, publishers, and agents, okay, to come together and create new opportunities for Muslims in literature. Okay, well, I think it's very, very important. I have always been the I've been on the FUBU track when it came yeah. to yeah. Muslims and writing for us by us. I think it's very, very important because it strengthens it, it gives it, it strengthens our ability to develop a, a, a cohesive and real narratives mm-hmm. that reflect our experiences, which is again a spectrum. But I think it's very, very important. We get to have an opportunity to have our, our work recognized for people where we don't have to give a lot of background information, or there may be that barrier of, of, of understanding exactly what, is, uh, what, 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 we, what it is that we're writing as well. You know, and it's funny because I just had, uh, I just uh, got a new review for my book, My Way to You. Yeah. And the the person liked the book, they really enjoyed the book, but they were disappointed because Regina's Muslim and the author didn't write enough about how she's different as a Muslim in the book. Regina's not Muslim. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> I was like, huh? I read the book. I didn't. Yeah, I know. You were like, huh? I never picked she's that up. Regina's Muslim. She yeah. wasn't. She, she isn't Muslim. But it, it, it's really, really interesting because one of the things that I thought about was when, you know, when the in the review the person wrote how she's different. And I'm thinking like, well, you know, well, how is a Muslim supposed to be different? And what does that mean? What does that mean? This person made it clear that they were Christian. But what does that mean in writing when it's Muslims writing about Muslims? two other Muslims, or writing about non-Muslims, two other Muslims, and a broader audience, and what is the, as far as the target audience, and how it is that we're building narratives out there uh, across our, our social intersections. You know, I'm a black Muslim woman, okay? So uh, 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 creating Regina was something that I did very specifically as a reflection of my experience as a black woman in an interracial relationship. Right. So it's like, what does that mean? You know, especially if someone may look at me and kind of get caught up, make the assumption that because I'm a covered Muslim woman that my character is Muslim. Because I ne- I mean, I had to go back and be like, wait a minute, I never even indicated at all that <laughs> <laughs> she was Muslim. So I could say it's a fair assumption to make, you know, but it's just like, what does that mean? So I think that conferences like this, are very, very important for writers like myself and other Muslim writers because now you have that space. But when you're writing, as a Muslim author, um, are you writing for just Muslims or are you are you telling stories that people, regardless of their backgrounds, but regardless of the boxes that they check off to identify themselves, that they can mm-hmm. find some benefit in they can find entertaining they can find some inspiration in uh my muslim romances are i i my primary audience uh, is muslim 
and and here's why. Uh, and in my interracial romances, my primary audience are my people, people in interracial relationships. <laughs> and, and here is why. Because there are certain things that and, and I as an author and maybe other authors, I think other authors do as well because I can read, I can see it in their, in their writing. Uh, I want to share a, a, a cultural connection with readers based on certain uh social experiences and intersections. So when I'm writing about uh, Muslims loving each other, American Muslims loving each other, I am speaking to other American Muslims. So there are certain things that I will include in a novel or in a story that's directly, like, trying to make that connection. Now, of course, I want other. Re- I don't write it so that it's exclusively so that so that someone that is not a part of that cultural experience doesn't get where it's coming from, or it's an oddity, or something exotic, you know. But my primary audience is is, is definitely Muslims. When I write, especially when I like uh, write Muslim uh, Muslim stories that center Muslims. But what about American what what about? And I, I think that's I think that's that's important this idea of of writing authentically so those people who actually share that experience recognize that it's not you know you're not putting on a a show that this is they can find some truth in this um but also realizing uh, as you said that p- people outside of that demographic are going to look in uh particularly when it comes to the uh, uh muslim stories about muslims that they're going to make assumptions or they're going to be learning Right. They'll be basing uh, opinions or their Mm -hmm. opinion will be informed off of what they're reading. Right. So how is how important is it in those instances to make sure that um, or is it important to make sure that it's clear that what you're depicting is is a view, not the view, but a view of how a particular community or particular relationship uh you know, might be constructed as a, you know, so people don't walk away thinking like, this is just it. Or is, is there something that's important? Is Ramadan, you try to get me in trouble. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> is Ramadan, you Come on, Sister Lena. Okay. I'm going to do it, brother. I'm going to do it. Okay. I'm going to do it. All right. So, first of all, okay. In all honesty, yes, it is important. It is important. But it has been my experience over years of reading a breadth of work uh, uh, inside and outside of Muslim culture that uh, black Muslims in particular are the only ones that do that. They're the only ones that, 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 that make it clear in their writing without being too explicit, but it's clear that this is part of the black Muslim experience. Non-black Muslims don't do that, okay? Um, They definitely uh, exploit generalizations about uh, uh, Middle Eastern, South Asian type of Muslim, foreign Muslim paradigm uh, uh, that exists, ideal type that exists in the United States. And so when they write these stories, they definitely do not indicate anything but this is what the Muslim experience is. Not that this is what this is a South Asian Muslim experience, 
not that this is an Arab Muslim experience, but this is what the Muslim experience is. It's not 100% their fault because you're talking about a dominant culture that doesn't know how to do anything but reduce anything outside of its culture. When you're talking about the dominant culture, any minority, any, any minority culture is going to be reduced, okay? That part you cannot help. But you can help as an author in making it clear that this is one of a multifaceted, multifaceted experiences that comprise American Muslim culture. And, non, and, and, and the majority of non-black Muslim authors do not do it. And I know it always seems like I'm coming down hard on non-black Muslim authors, but that's just, just the reality of what it is, okay? They've been given a amount of privilege, and when it comes to the voices that are, that that are that are are given when it comes to American Muslim culture, and so uh, they, in, in almost in out going off the course, they will definitely kind of like center that, and that's the reason why there's all this talk about erasure and things like that, uh, and why it's important for them to kind of like hold back on that. So yes, it is important to kind of indicate that this make it make it clear that this is one of a lot of different cultural experiences. But beyond that, if you decide as an author that I'm speaking directly to my people when I write this and the rest of you can connect with it because there's humanity in it, period. Okay? And if you cannot connect with it, it's because you don't see the humanity in it. And that's your hang up. That's not my hang up. Okay, first of all. Uh, okay, second, the broader society, especially white society. So white authorship never asks those questions. It, uh, they've become, it's become the normalized race, and, and especially the art authorship and narrative uh, building. So they never ask that. They're never expected to make it clear or anything like that. As, as a matter of fact, when it's written, they have that privilege of being able to write whatever they want, whatever they want, completely excluding any other race or anything like that, and that's fine. Yeah, so when they're not asked those questions, it's the minority authors that are usually asked those types of questions, okay? When, when the minority author decides to exclude uh, the broader society and broader culture, whiteness, basically, and center on uh, narrative building about their experience and about their people, then it's like, well, when are you going to uh, make your, your characters more diverse? When are you going to add some white characters to it? And a perfect example is Toni Morrison. All right. She it, writes African-American characters. <laughs> she writes. Right. And so she was asked, and she told, the, she told the interviewer, you don't know how incredibly racist that is because you wouldn't ask a white author that. You wouldn't ask right. right off of that. So it's it's not that it's a matter of listen, you have to include everyone, okay? But listen, you can't make it where it's just like, well, this is just the, the, the finite experience. I find it kind of difficult to believe to to read uh books written by uh non black Muslims that don't include any black Muslims at all. I find it hard to believe, but I I'm not surprised by it because we many we as a a, a, a culture are under this big delusion that non-black Muslims, because they're a minority in the United States, 
do not end up in their own isolated communities. There are a lot of non-black Muslims that aspire to whiteness and proximity to whiteness, and so they end up in those isolated white communities. So the only the only two social groups they really can connect with is their own and the white community that they aspire to be near, okay? And it comes out in their writing. Uh, and you can't force it because if you force it, you can see it a mile away. Right. You know, I've written, I've, I've read books where it's very clear, like, you don't know no black Muslims at all. You just from here. black Muslims at all. You know, and it was just this one book. I didn't read it because when I read the when I read the blurb of the book, I just was like, "Yeah, I knew this was going to be written sooner or later." You tell me what it's about. Uh, a black author was uh, was disturbed because she said, "You know, how do you write about this experience and about about Muslims' experiences with uh, a bias and and and, and anti-Muslim sentiment, Islamophobia, and everything, and you don't include black Muslims in your book at all?" I wasn't surprised. But it does happen. So it's like you have to kind of look. You really need to think about those things as you're writing. And I think that this, these types of conversations are important, and they, that's the reason why we need to have conferences like this, so that it's clear. You know, there is a huge problem, okay, with presumed incompetence when it comes to black Muslim authors and with this condescension that occurs with uh, non between non-black Muslim authors and black Muslim authors. So, Sister and, Layla, tell me, yeah. tell me this because we are about to run out of the okay. clock. Tell us again when is the conference? Okay, so the conference, Muslim Writers and Publishers Association conference, is Saturday, July sixth. Okay, nine a.m. to six p.m. at the DoubleTree Hilton. And it's in Detroit, Michigan, okay? It's $99 to register, but there's a lot there. You can go on uh, MuslimWritersAndPublishers.org slash tickets, or you can contact Muslim Writers and Publishers at contact at MuslimWritersAndPublishers.org. Or you can visit their, their Facebook page. They have a Facebook page. They have an Instagram page. They have a Twitter page, and you can get more information on that as well. Okay. Thank you so much as always. Uh, I'm looking forward to our next conversation. Uh, Radio Slime family, uh, we thank you for hanging out with us for another hour. Uh, we thank our engineers over at WCEB for making sure we come through loud and clear. I'm your host and producer, Tariq el -Amin. Our executive producer is Abdul-Malik Mujahid, and we remind you that the views expressed by the host and or guest are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. And with that, we're going to leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Thank you.